Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. My guest this week is Jonathan Bayliss, an indie comics creator well-known for his comic Sew Buttons, among many other things. Jonathan has worked in the comics industry for the better part of 20 years off and on and shares some of his favorite stories about working for folks. The stories begin with his uh, owning an original piece of Eddie Campbell art from From Hell, going to uh, how he dealt with Jack Kirby's passing in a very unique way, and delves into a whole slew of interesting stories about comics history over the years. I think it's a really fun episode and hope you enjoy it. Thanks. I uh, I own uh, I own a page of uh, From Hell. Oh, do you really? Wow. Yeah, I think I, you know, if I if I remember correctly, I think Chris Staros acting as his agent, you know, Chris Staros from Top Shelf, mm-hmm. uh, which is now part of IDW. I think maybe in issues of Bacchus, like in the back of Bacchus or something like that. Okay. Uh, or or maybe even in the back of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen for some reason. Um, they, 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 they would be like, hey, original art available. And, you know, it was a it was a weird time. Like I started to collect original art, um, you know, I, I think like after a period uh, where it would have been really great if I would have uh, if I would have <laughs> bought, bought that. Like like I worked you know, when I was interning at the Tops company, uh, you know, I worked San Diego, uh, you know, a couple of years in a row. And I remember passing up like Watchmen pages for one hundred twenty-five dollars. Oh my which god! Are, which are now going for like you know fifteen thousand dollars or something like that. Yeah. But but then but then after that I was like oh I'm gonna pick up a, I'm gonna pick up a couple of things that are maybe a little more um, I don't know like indie-ish or something like that like I you know so I bought um, uh, I bought a page from Hell from Eddie I think wow, that was like a hundred dollars or something. Oh. Uh, and then uh, uh, I bought a couple of, you know, there was a, there was a website. Was, this is sort of like web 1.0, but there's this website, I think it was called comiccon.com. It yes. might have been r- run by like, I don't know, like Steve Bissett and Rick Veach, you know, like those yeah. guys. And, and I think Rick was selling Miracle Man artwork. And I bought, I think, a page from Rick and a page from John Toddleben or a double, double page spread from John Toddleben. And like, yeah, same thing. Like now those, you know, those, those things are, 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 are worth a couple of bucks. But, uh, um, but now, you know, when you look at, you know, original art, it's, uh, it's kind of a crazy, you know, it's a crazy field right now. And so like, you know, I think for many, many years, it's like, oh, you can get Jack Kirby pages for like, you know, like hundreds of dollars. And now like everything, you know, like anything truly classic is like tens of thousands of dollars. And then you'll even have like super duper things like, you know, a Todd McFarlane cover from an early Spider-Man, you know, was like 300 grand or something like that. Yeah, and it's, just, it's yeah, insane. Just whacking. Just but if you look wacking. off the beaten path, you can find stuff for decent prices. So like I bought a, um, well, I, I'm staring right now, I have a Kurt Swan page from a, from a Star Trek annual. Oh, no. That I bought for like 125 or something. And it's oh, wow. got, it's got Kirk talking to Sulu. And oh, just a nice funny. page, really nicely uh, inked by Ricardo Villagran. Um, and it's just like a cool thing to have. And yeah, I didn't pay much for that. I have a page from um, Mike Sikowski's run on Metal Men, 
from 1968. Oh, wow. Wow. So I got so for like cool. 75. So if you like are willing to go off the beaten path, you yeah. can find it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to. I'm trying to think. I think I have one Kurt Swan page, and the only way I got it was I did a trade. Yeah, I think I, now that I re- now that I remember correctly, I think the first I remember the first original art pages I got, and they were randomly hung up in stores that I visited in other states. You know, who even remembers why I was there? But I was in this one comic store, I think in Connecticut, and a guy had like two Jim Apero Batman pages. Oh, and I, nice! And, you know, and they were like, of course, like. $35 or like you know, something like that. Uh-huh. So I remember, so I remember buying, it was with the KG beast. Uh, and, and uh, I, oh, I, bought, wow. I, bought, I bought a couple of those and there was a guy, you know, and there's this uh, website called comic art fans.com. Uh, and it's like where people post all their original art. And so he was like, Hey, I, I like, I really want a Jim Apero Batman. Uh, he goes, and I'm interested in trading. And I was like, well, what do you got? And I was looking and he had like two Kurt Swan, Murphy Anderson inked, you know, Superman pages. I was like, well, let's trade a Superman for a Batman, and you know, like uh, we'll do that. And uh, that you know, my Kurtzman page came came from a trade, and I think it was the only trade I've ever made. Nice, yeah. well done. Yeah, um, fun stuff, fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. The most recent page I bought, I, I just get more and more obscure too. The more I know this comics history, is a page from. Inner city, inner city romance. Oh, Jack is, Kirby. Uh, no, it, it, it's not the Kirby book. It's uh, Guy Caldwell did a five-issue oh, okay. underground series called Inner City Romance, which is huh. very urban style, um, just it, st- just romance and other stories. And um, Fanagraphics has a bookstore out here, and I bought a page from that for them from them for like $125. And oh, to me, really it's just cool. like, or just a cool thing to have. And it's like, if you know what you're looking at and understand the context, it's like a really valuable page, but it's not a Kurt Swan, you know, it's not a Jim right. Romero. Right, right. Oh yeah. So I, I've got my computer in front of me. I'm taking a, a, a look at it, taking a look at it right now. Oh, and sure enough, it's almost like I'm looking at original art from the, from the comics journal uh, website. I didn't realize they sold original art there at the fanographic store. Yeah, at, at, only at the gallery because they have a, a real store, a physical oh, wow, store here cool. in Seattle, and they yeah. did a gallery showing of his work, and I picked this one up for like one twenty-five, which was like wow. bargain. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah, it's it's that's just fun to have stuff. this stuff, right? Yeah, totally, uh, totally. Well, so okay, so I'll, I'll formally kick it off in this way. So you've been All doing right, your so uh, mini comic for what, about ten years now, Jonathan. It has something to like be... that. It's at least a decade because before I started collecting the strips into mini comics, uh, you know, I, uh, uh, you know, like they, they would appear in random, random anthologies. And I never really thought, never really thought I would collect them, never really thought I would keep it going. But yeah, you know, once I started collecting, um, you know, the strips uh, and put them into, you know, one book uh, called Sew Buttons. I then, you know, started putting out one book a year for every year. And, you know, this is year 10 that I will put out, uh, yeah, issue, issue 10 out at uh, SPX uh, in Bethesda, Maryland in September. So, yeah, at least 10 years. It's total labor of love for you, I'm sure. It is a labor of love. I think, I think, I think uh, it, it, it's that way for a lot of uh, comic book people. There's not a, uh, 
not a ton of money. <laughs> so uh, right. uh, comics is definitely a labor of, of love. I mean, I, there was a point where I tried to make comics my, my career in that, you know, I started out as like an intern at Marvel, you know, my last year of college and then I interned at Valiant which then became acclaim, and then I interned at Tops, and then I got a job at Tops. But this was, you know, in the in the, in the mid to late '90s when everything was falling apart, as you know, since you just wrote a book about comics in the '90s. Yeah, you were at Marvel during kind of the dark age. <laughs> I mean, I, my my first day at Marvel, I was Jack Kirby died. Like that was. Oh that was wow! When, uh, you know, so one of my first first assignment was uh i went with my editor uh steve saffle uh he you know he he had a really good relationship he was like an old marvel zombie who is now uh, an editor at marvel like a lot of those marvel editors were uh and he had a relationship with joe simon uh and i think he had a relationship with ditko also i mean you know steve is a kind of a fascinating guy who's you know been connected to a ton of classic people but uh yeah we went to joe simon's house to or his apartment rather uh to get like a photo of him and jack for a one-page obituary that i was writing for marvel age steve was the editor of marvel age and he uh he did not have an assistant editor so as an intern i was almost uh, like an ersatz uh, assistant editor there and i remember meeting joe and i brought along a couple of copies of you know dc reprints of boy commandos mm-hmm. and uh he uh, he said that he didn't. He didn't have like one copy of any issue of Boy Commandos, and I, I felt pretty uh, pretty horrible about that. And I said, mm. I said, well, then you should you should just have these. Like, just to, you know, I was going to have you sign them for me. I was like, but you should keep them. And in return, you know, he he wrote a book uh, about uh, about his time in comics. I think it was called the Comic Book Makers, mm-hmm. and he gave gave me his book and signed that. And it was kind of a kind of a sweet. Uh, sweet moment. Joe, Joe was a sweet guy. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, a- after Jack passed, uh, I think he did a lot of, you know, sort of uh, cover recreations and paintings of Captain America and fighting American and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, I think, he, I mean, I think that guy lived, lived up until a few years ago. I think he lived into his 90s. He might yeah. have gone to the, the first Captain America movie, Joe. But yeah, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, I tried, tried, tried making it my career, but yeah, things, things, things were imploding all, all around me. I mean, I was at Marvel hoping to get a job when I finished my internship, but uh, instead, uh, you know, they were like, they were firing people, and within a couple of years, kind of went out of business as Marvel Comics, and then, uh, you know, they they rebirthed as Marvel Entertainment, but mm-hmm. you know, Marvel Comics as it was was uh, was dead. Uh, and then, you know, when I got my internship at Valiant Comics, uh, on the first day there, you know, like Valiant, they were, they were kind of known for having a really, uh, really nice look color wise. They had all these hand colorists, uh, with, with their stuff and they, they were like all fired. They were all fired on like the day, the day that I showed up. They were, you know, Welcome kid. Yeah. And, and, and they were walking out and I think everything, everything went digital at that time. Like, you know, uh, they were working with a guy named Lovern Kinzerski, who's a, who's a brilliant colorist. The guy, the guy is amazing. Um, but, he, you know, he had this company called Digital Chameleon, maybe still does. Uh, and, you know, just, that's just what the trend was. So the hand, hand colorist went away and it went towards digital. 
Um, and, uh, you know, while I was there, the staff got halved, I think, two or three times. And I, 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 my, I just, you know, I just wrote a story from my last issue. I've been, I've been kind of chronicling my intern stories uh, in comics and, and, and having them drawn by Fred Hembeck of all yeah. people who who is someone who you know he drew strips when i you know i grew up i would read you know he had strips in comic buyer's guide if you remember that like you know that i really really loved that and he had a, like a magazine thing that was put out by fanico and upstate new york and then he was in marvel age so, i mean i followed that guy's career forever and i was so thrilled that he's drawing my intern stories but i had him draw my my last valiant story and it was basically about how on the last day for a lot of people, the bullpen there, they just played uh, the Imperial March, you know, from mm -hmm. the Empire Strikes Back mm -hmm. all day long as people were getting fired. So uh -huh. it was sort of like, you know, like they would call somebody, somebody would go into an office and then you'd hear like, they'd come out deflated and, you know, without a job and, it was it was it was a tough it was a tough time in comics, uh, you know. And then then after yeah, that, yeah, you were to... born. You're almost involved ten years too late, I guess, or ten years too yeah, soon, I'm, one way or the I other. Wanna, yeah, I want to say for sure, for sure. In in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, like I, um, uh, you know, when I right when I look at look at that period of comics for you know being in mainstream comics, I got in uh, I got into you know too late there. But same thing I think with my you know with my sort of like indie small press comics. I think when I started, all of the the the, the new guard or you know whatever would be I don't know if I would even call them my my peers, but like the people who all, were all starting at the same time were ten years younger than me, and mm. also you know also in in a, just a different fashion because there aren't that many people that are just writers like I am, and I think that in the small press world, uh, I probably I probably don't get a uh, you know, much notice or much respect uh, because I'm not a, you know, self-sustaining creator in that way. And, you know, all the people that I've seen around me, uh, you know, I've, uh, you know, I've, I've seen them like grow and blossom as, you know, you know, amazing, amazing creators. Uh, but, they, but they do everything. They do everything them, themselves. And, you know, like I'm, I, and I remain, it's just exactly the same, you know, like I'm having people, <laughs> having, you know, people enjoying my stories. I mean, the one, the one thing, one thing I'll say is that a lot of, a lot of these people who are, I think now successes along the way, I, I might've been their first paying gig or uh, one, one of their first paying gigs. So like it is, it is definitely nice to see, uh, you know, some of the people that I've worked with over the years, uh, you know, blossom into uh, bigger creators. Yeah, you know, that's a lot of what I thought, what I think about in terms of my so-called career in comics. I guess I can call it a career in comics. Because, mm. you know, I ran Comics Bulletin for about 10 years. Right, And right. Um, I had a whole slew of people who were able to come up and build careers in one way or another in comics or even outside comics. Um, based on the work that they did for me. And um, it's just been a pleasure to be able to see everyone kind of grow and sustain themselves and really push themselves. Um, some of my 
former people are writing comics themselves or working for companies or writing for the comics journal site and um, other places and really getting to kind of achieve a lot of their lifelong goals. And for me, that's one of the reasons why I moved into the book writing is because I just felt like I didn't want to be stagnant just doing the same thing over and over or kind of turning over a new set of creators. Um, I wanted to wanted to be able to kind of expand my profile, I guess. Yeah, um, for sure. So I can appreciate what you're saying. Um, yes, yes. So you joined Marvel in February 1994, easy enough That's to true. Google the day, the death of Jack Kirby. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> that, that coincided with uh, the return uh, for my senior year at NYU Film School. Uh, you know, we, we were allowed to, uh, you, know, we, we, you know, we were supposed to have an internship. Uh, it was supposed to be, you know, somewhere in the in like the entertainment, you know, TV or film industry. And, you know, somehow I convinced them uh, to allow me to work at Marvel because even though they weren't really involved in, you know, TV TV or big movie properties at the at the time, except for maybe like, you know, like a Spider-Man cartoon or something like that, um, uh, you know, because it was still in the entertainment field and I would be working with marketing people uh, and, and salespeople and just all different kinds of people, you know, at Marvel through Marvel Age. Uh, you know, I, I made a good argument to, uh, you know, for them to give me credit for that internship. And uh, even if they didn't give me credit for the internship, uh, I, I would not have uh, I, I would not have cared uh, because I didn't need that credit anyway for my degree. <laughs> so, <laughs> but you're I, obviously I, yeah. you're obviously creative um, even in high school if you went to film school um, and then yes. comics were just one of the areas from there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I grew up learning how to read through uh, through through comics. So I was just always a comics fan, uh, but uh, I would say equally a, t a TV and movie fan. And I went, uh, uh, you know, and I wasn't wasn't really a good good artist, and I never really thought I, I didn't really give it much thought to have a career in in comics. Uh, but I, you know, I thought like, oh, but you could have a career in like in film and TV. So I went in that route. And I actually did not really love NYU. I mean, it's you know whatever. It's a it's a fine school uh, at the at the time. It was like one of one of the, like three three big ones. And now I feel like every every school has a film program. But back back in the day, it was you know there weren't weren't that many. It was like UC, USC, NYU, UCLA, a couple others. Um, and so I went you know I went there, but I kind of got sick of it. And I and I thought like oh I should have just saved the money and. You know, move to LA and become a PA or something like that. If I really wanted to work in, work in film, like you know, there's it wasn't that much you could really learn in school that you can learn on your own. But mm -hmm. you know, the, the difference between then and now is then that was how you could get access to equipment that was super expensive. Now you know, kids can make a, a movie on their iPhone ju just as good as I could have done. You know, paying a hundred grand at film school. You know, back, back in the day, right. Um, but, but hey, uh, it's an education. Uh, for sure. For so you sure. end up working for Steve Safflow at the time. You said, was he working? He wasn't the editor of Marvel Age, but you were working he, on related stuff anyway. Yeah, he, he, Steve Safflow was the editor of Marvel Age. Okay. Uh, at, at the time, and he did not have an assistant editor. So, I, so, here's, so here's what happened. Like, so, I, you know, I had a semester abroad, um, and I, I, you know, I went, to, went to London. 
And coincidentally, down the street was a comic book shop owned by a guy from Brooklyn, but in London. And, you know, I, I found like I refound like my love for comics and I discovered indie comics. Uh, and I decided at that point, I was like, oh, you know, because really looking at the credits and I was like, oh, editor, like that's a thing like me, like me, that <laughs> thing, you know. And so I um, I think, you know, it was like 1993 when I came back from London, I went to my first Comic-Con, which was in philadelphia of all places and it's this there's a little bit of a like notoriety to that particular comic-con because there was like a war going on between todd mcfarlane and peter david oh yeah i read about that in the book yeah they're the debate yeah Yeah, i was there like i went like i went to that debate todd shows up he wants to play i think the like he shows up with a a robe like rocky like a boxer and he, he presses play on the cassette deck to play the Rocky theme and the cassette deck didn't work. It was like, you know, Todd's kind of a mess. Uh, I love that guy, but he's a mess. And uh, so I was at that convention and legend was being announced at the time. So I have this poster that got signed by all the legend guys. It was like John Byrne and Frank Miller. Wait, wait. So uh, let's, let's go back to this Todd sure. McFarlane cause thing. Cause I think it's a great story. So this is like a couple of years after Todd had gone to, or basically co-created uh, image comics. Yes, and Todd had notoriously ranted in an interview or somewhere that uh, we don't need writers these days. It's all about the artists. Anyone can write. And right. Peter David was furious about this and said, "No, no, no! Listen, kid, I'm at we writers add value. We add a lot to your to your game." And they staged this kind of fake uh, debate, which Todd seemed to take very seriously. Yeah, Todd took Todd took super seriously. Like he. You know, like he's a like a like a sincere Canadian, right? Like you know, like he 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 really took it to heart. And Peter David, you know, before he was a writer of comics, uh, I believe was like a marketing guy at Marvel. You know, like I think you know, like he probably he probably he believed what he said. First of all, at least Peter David, I think, is one of the great writers of uh, of his era. Uh, you know, and he he would write these fun columns in the back of Comic Buyer's Guide. So you know, I think there was a little bit of like you know marketing. In, in his arguments with Todd, but also, you know, Todd, he, he was given his own book at Marvel. Like he moved from Amazing Spider-Man to that, you know, single title Spider-Man. And, you know, the books looked like Todd McFarlane books, but they were written like shit. Like, they're, they're, you know, he's not a writer. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think uh, it made for a good, a, a good idea for a debate. And so, you know, I remember, I remember going to that and, uh, you know, Peter David is—he's just a—he's a—he's a smarter guy. Like it wasn't—wasn't really a competition in you know like who like who has the better argument? Like you know, I think you just wanted to see Peter kind of like give it to Todd, but Todd had a you know a huge following, pro- you know, probably bigger than than Peter's following. So you know, you had a lot of I want to say like image bros <laughs> at the. Uh, at that convention. So it just made for like a, a kind of a fun, fun event when, when comic cons were still comic cons. Yeah. It's just crazy. Right. From the way it describes, yeah. like it got pretty heated and pretty, uh, pretty bizarre there. For it, a was while. T- it was totally, totally bizarre that he, that he came out, like he wanted to come out like Rocky and then he couldn't even get the cassette deck to play. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, it was really bizarre. It was really, it's too uh, bad there's no video really of it. 
Yeah, then you touched on Legend, which is like, so I think people who don't, who didn't live through that era don't realize how chaotic 1993 and 1994 especially were in comics. Mm. Because in 92, 1990, uh, there was X, uh, uh, rather, uh, Spider-Man number one, the objective, right. objective-less Spider-Man number one yep. came out and sold like four million copies. 1991, yep. uh, the objective uh, list. X-Men number one came out, sold 8.2 million. Right. 90 second half of that year, Image debuts, and they're immediately selling millions of copies per issue. Yeah, 93, 93, there's something like 40 new companies or imprints debut. Uh, and there's this incredible boom in the comics industry. And there's yeah, a famous the story. Uh, right. Uh, even more, there's a famous story of comics being canceled that, that were selling 120,000 copies. Because sure. they didn't even break the top hundred, right? Uh, it's, it's crazy. Uh, and so by '94, there was this massive gold rush, and Legend Comics was an imprint that basically was Dark Horse created as their answer to Image, which right. included the big stars at the time, like uh, well Frank Miller and John Byrne, as well as uh, as Art well as Mike Mignola and, and Art Adams, who yep. were kind of like. Mike Mignola, he's just a journeyman. Ironically, ended up being the biggest star out of all of them. Sure. Oh, for sure. Crazy. And you were there for the whole debut event for that line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had, I had, I had all those. Like, I, you know, I'm pretty sure I had every signature. I mean, Dave Gibbons was there also because he and Frank were doing Mar- uh, Martha Washington, mm-hmm. uh, Art, Art Adams, John Byrne, uh, Jeff Darrow, right? Because he and Frank were doing Rusty the Robot or something like that. Yeah. Uh, or Rusty and the Giant Robot, I forget what that was called. But yeah, all those guys were there. And, you know, I brought my issues that were, you know, totally uh, totally worn down issues of, you know, uh, Frank Miller, Daredevil, and John Byrne, Fantastic Four, and Alpha Flight, you know, so they could, like, sign my copies. But I also have this poster that is the, you know, the, the legend poster where they, you know, they all, they all signed. And uh, that was, uh, yeah, that was, that, that was a really big deal. I had never i'd never really met um so many great comic creators uh all at once i mean when i was when i was a kid i was lucky enough to live near this thing that was called uh i think it was called like god it was it might have just been called like the comics museum of westchester or something like that but mort walker of beetle bailey fame rented a castle in portchester new york and he and there was like a ton of original art there uh, and so you would see comic strip art and comic book art, and every once in a while they'd have they would have a day. And I, it's funny, I literally just posted these photos a few months ago uh, of me going there at age. It had to be like I had to be somewhere between ten and thirteen, and it was called like Marvel Day at the Comics Museum, and it was Chris Claremont uh, and uh, Louise Simonson and June Brigman because they were working on Power Pack. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think I got Chris to sign copies of. New Mutants, uh, Carl Potts was there, and Walt Simonson was there. He drew me a Beta Ray Bill, uh, you know. So, uh, but 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 in a, in a I think in a much bigger way, seeing the all these legend guys at once in this one place was really uh, really huge. Especially that I was a little bit more older to uh, to appreciate it. And uh, so so at this convention, I went up to the Marble booth and. Uh, and I met, I think it was Bob Harris, who was the X-Men editor at the time. Now maybe he's a DC or something. And I said, uh, I said, can you give me a job? 
and he goes, he goes, well, uh, we do have internships at Marvel. Why don't I hook you up with Mary Mack? And Mary Mack uh, was the secretary for Tom DeFalco, who was the editor-in-chief at the time. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, he's like, contact Mary Mack, you know, get her a resume, and she'll, you know, she'll talk to you and see, see if you can, you know, be an intern at Marvel. And sure enough, like, that, like, that, is, that is how that happened. And I met, you know, I met Mary, Ma I met, you know, Bob Harris there. And then I also met Ira Friedman and Greg Goldstein from Topps Comics. And they were releasing Mike Mignola's Dracula. I think that was the launch comic for, for Topps. It was Mike Mignola did a Dracula comic. Just uh, a beautiful Ford comic. Fran beautiful, right? Francis Ford Coppola's uh, version of Dracula. And Mike, Mike drew a comic for that. And so I met the Topps people. And, you know, I wound up working you know, working for both. I worked at Marvel and then later on I, I, I did work at Tops for those people. So that was a very, uh, that was a very good convention for me. So Marvel at the time was kind of unfashionable. Um, they really kind of, they sold more than anyone else, but they were out of step with, with the rest of the industry. What was it like working there? You said they were kind of so, cost, cost conscious, uh, pinching pennies a bit. Yeah. I mean, when I was there, I think, so, I mean, I feel like the, traje the trajectory of, uh, of that era, right, is like there was the, uh, the death of Superman, right? Mm -hmm. And with the, with, the, with the death of Superman, I think that really launched the whole, like, people buying, like, insane amounts of copies. Like, I think that's, that comic is, like, the number three best-selling comic. And then, and then those Marvel books, you know, you know sold, sold more than that. But that really started the, the speculator speculator boom. And so by the time I got to Marvel, it was this whole thing where they were just uh, – it was more about quantity than quality. So I think I was there at peak Clone Wars era, right? <laughs> I, think there's, I think there's a nostalgia now – and a little, you know, I don't know if I would call it re revisionist history, but I think there there is a certain a certain appreciation for that for that period of comics. But at the time, I comics fans, uh, I don't know anyone who liked the Clone Wars. I like I don't know anyone who liked that Spidey Spidey Clone Wars stuff. And but they but they kept on like printing it and and, and keeping it going and keeping it going. There's a guy uh, who was an assistant editor at the time. I think his name was. Glenn Greenberg, he mm -hmm. wrote this amazing history about how uh, about how the, basically it, it, Marvel Comics was run by the marketing team or something. How basically right. the, the, because they were just these books were selling, they were like, keep this storyline going, keep it going, you know. So even though fans kind of hated it, uh, that you know they 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 just kept on pushing it out. And, you know, the way that I always describe that period of comics history is, you know, because they put out so much crap, the fans went away. But then when the speculators realized that they were never going to sell that, you know, that Superman issue or that X-Men issue for more than a dollar, uh, then they left as well. So you lost the fans, you lost the speculators, you had very few people left. And that's why you lost, I think, like, 3,000 stores or something like that. And it was just like, it, it, the industry was crazy. I mean, when, uh, you know, at, at, at the time, at the worst point, I would say, like when I was at uh, 
tops and I was, do, you know, I moved from the comics, which were failing to the cards division, the entertainment cards market dropped 70% in one year. It was crazy. It was a crazy time. Everything was failing. Yeah, I have a sales chart up in front of me that I captured from an issue of Comics Retailer from 2000. Wow. Um, in uh, like March 1993, which is the month that the, the uh, Return of Superman was released, right. there were 48.2 million copies of comics sold to retailers. Wow. By January 1994, that number was 21.3, less than wow. half. That's in the crazy. space of eight One months. One year. Yeah. Wow. In the space of eight months. That's um, crazy. And yeah. by, by like uh, January 1995, it was down to 19 million. And by the end of the decade, it was down to 7 million. The decade wow. actually started with 10.6 million sold. And by December 1999, 7 million. So, wow. like, it's a complete boom and bust. And it, it's um, one of the most amazing, like, business stories alone that, that yeah. you can imagine. And I think, I think the repercussions are still felt today. And, you know, which is why a whole new industry has been born around book, graphic novels and yeah. memoirs and books. And, you know, I mean, you look at people like uh, Raina Telgemeier, you know, she's, you know, she, she's had her, her, her graphic novels on the bestseller list, you know, every single week since the New York Times started to track it. Uh, you know, there are times when, you know, she's held... You know, like I think every single spot in the top ten, except for maybe the Walking Dead companion or something like that. Yeah. You know, there's a whole yeah, there's a whole other universe out there that is not, uh, you know, Marvel and DC anymore. And uh, I, I don't I don't know that it'll ever fully return to that. I mean, you look at what's happening this weekend with uh, with Endgame. That that's going to be one of the biggest movies of all time, and it doesn't mean anything for comics because really DC and Marvel Comics are now new product development divisions of film companies. Well, it's an just incredible lost opportunity. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you you were saying in '94 when you were at Marvel, it was all about the next hot thing and let's keep the Clone Saga go, the awful yeah. Spider-Man Clone Saga going because it's going to keep people reading comics. Um, what was the atmosphere like there? Did you First of all, was it what you expected? And secondly, like, what were you stuck working on every day? So for, so for me, my internship experience was very, was very different than other people's uh, internship experiences. Like, you know, I think like the Spider-Man office, like Danny Fingeroth and, you know, and Bob Harris in the X-Men office, they had maybe a couple of interns. And literally the only thing those kids did was uh, copy original artboards like you know and they, they, you know it's like they would t they would take the you know and, and the original art is typically on what uh is, is it 11 by 14 or no it's 14 by 17 uh, yeah. like tabloid size paper and it, reducing it 65 percent uh you know for you know for, for for the editors to look at uh and that that is what they did all day. I the reason I chose to work for Steve Saffold because Mary Mac said, you know, you could work for anyone you want except for X Men and Spider Man. And I was like, that's fine. Tell me about what else is going on. And you know, she's like, well, there's Marvel Age. And I remember Marvel Age because for some silly reason, I was a fan of this terrible comic called Crystar, the Crystal Warrior. Uh -huh. It was really a, to a, a toy tie-in. 
and uh-huh. the first issue of Marvel Age had Kristar on it. Uh, mm-hmm. And so Marvel Age was always on my radar. Uh, and so that I heard that he did not have an assistant editor. So, so I would be doing more than the average intern. So I, you know, I got very excited by, you know, by doing more than just cop than xeroxing art, xeroxing artboards, and uh, and I, and I did. It was like, you know, like I said, you know, like before, you know, when Jack Kirby died, I wrote a one-page obituary. I went to Joe Simon's place. Uh, you know, sometimes we, you know, we would get uh, artwork for the for the covers and. Like at the time, I remember Alex Ross was doing, I think what, what it might now be known as like Marvel's number zero, which is about like a story about the original robot human torch. It yeah. was serialized in Marvel Age. And I, and, and I think the first time it was printed, uh, I think two pages were printed out of order, much to Alex's chagrin. But uh, but yeah, Alex Ross would come in and like he was, you know, he was just this guy who was, who was a painter and he had like really, really long hair and uh you know and he was doing this thing that was uh this kind of cool painted thing before this thing marvels was going to come out you know mm-hmm. uh i used to no they didn't to... they didn't expect marvels to be a hit at all no no it's just this random random painted thing uh you know by by alex and uh, who's a kirk busiak right mm-hmm. uh yeah and, and i was you know that was fantastic like the second you read the story in marvel age it was like it was fantastic the way kurt was writing it but that guy you know like, like peter david like these are two of the you know two of the best writers uh of, of that time period uh and you know Mar- marvels is now like an unbelievable classic but the, but at the time alex was just bringing in these human torch pages uh, I got to talk to Stan Lee on the phone. You know, he would write a he would write a page for you know for Marvel every Marvel Age every month. Uh, you know, I remember like you know like oh we got in a page for uh, a, you know like a cover that was drawn by John Romita Jr. and you know like like maybe like the inker dropped out like maybe Al Williamson was supposed to supposed to ink it but it wasn't the right time so uh, Klaus Klaus Jansen was going to do it. But, you know, and Klaus lived in town, so I took the page to Klaus's apartment on 8th Street. Uh, you know, so, like, there was, it was really a lot of fun that I got to, you know, do this kind of, you know, I, I had FaceTime with, with artists that, that I loved. But also I learned about uh, marketing and sales because uh, I would find out, you know, how people scheduled things m- months in advance and how things were licensed and how things were merchandised and uh, we would put all those kind of things in Marvel Age. It was, it was, you know, it was a a Wizard Comics of Marvel yeah. before wizard, before there was a Wizard. Uh, so it was it was great. It was a it was a it was a great semester to be to be at that place. But you know, you, you know, your question is like, what was the feeling like? I think that with you know, sort of Jack dying and. You know, Marvel bought Fleer, and I think a lot of the editor. I feel like a lot of the editors at the time were like, "Why? Like, why did we have to buy Fleer? Why did we have to pay all this money? Like, pay pay all this money?" And like, there just didn't seem to be a lot of, you know, there were sales, but also weirdly not a lot of growth. And mm-hmm. you know, I think it was you know, and at the time I was really like trying to beg to get an assistant editor job for real because uh, I had to, I had to work. I was graduating college and there was, there was just no growth whatsoever. There was no, no positions. And very soon after I left, I think they fired a ton of FLIR people and they fired a bunch of Marvel people. And I think they closed down the office on, 
uh, I think it was on Park Avenue. It was like Park Avenue in the upper twenties, and uh, you know they had to they had to move else elsewhere. I think currently they're right near where I used to work at Thirty Rock. I think they're on like Fiftieth Street or Fifty First Street in in like an old Time building, uh, Time Magazine it's, building. It, it's the Bayless Curse, right? You, work yeah, for- you know. Totally. I mean, yeah. For in, in the nineties, uh, if I if I worked for your company, forget it. <laughs> it was it was, it, it, it was not good. right. You know, so what was Stan to... like when you talked with him? I'm sure everyone's going to want to hear a Stan story from you. I you know what? I don't have like a like a great Stan story. I just know that you know every once in a while. I mean, mostly Steve Saffer would talk to him, but every once in a while he'd be like, "Oh, could you call Stan and bug him?" It's like I've already bugged him. Uh, can you bug him, you know, to uh, to get the uh, get the page? And he was just, you know, he was just like, like a normal a, a normal guy to talk to. Like I, you know, I didn't, he he was in L.A. I didn't never saw him in the in the New York office. I don't really have a super Stan story. And you know, okay. my, my 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 feelings for Stan have um, have fluctuated uh, over the years. Uh, you know, by knowing you know, as much of the history as I know and being in the indie community, so many indie people hate that guy, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, cause of, you know, all the stuff that happened with original art and Jack getting, getting all his credit and, and his, his money and his share and all the stuff that went on with Ditko. Like there's, you know, he's, he's a full on controversial guy, I think to, to talk about, but like for me, you know, he, he was a guy who was, who was nice on the phone, you know, like, you know, uh, I got him to say Excelsior to me, <laughs> you, know, like, <laughs> uh, you know, like, uh, you know, like uh, at the time I didn't know any, any of the background stuff. So I was like, Oh, it's like, he's a sweet, sweet old guy, you know, and, and talking to him after Jack died was, you know, was a really nice thing. I mean, I didn't know the guy was going to live for another 30 years, uh, or whatever it is, 20 years, 25 years. But, um, you know, I, I just thought like, Oh, he's like a sweet old guy. And, you know, it's nice that he's still writing these little articles from, you know, for, for, for Marvel age and that, in that Stanley way. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, no, I don't, I, I don't have a super duper Stan story. Okay. Um, anyone that jumps out at you from the, from the time you were at Marvel that you just either loved or hated working with? Uh, any person, any, per- well, I mean, my, sort of like my my favorite marvel story is this my my favorite marvel story is after you know after jack died and we were working on this memorial issue uh, at the time the art director of marvel was uh, john romita senior so you know he was working there and and uh, we asked him to do this cover where it was jack uh, surrounded by his creations uh and we were gonna you know we were gonna go get it inked by joe sinnott um, and so John draws it, delivers the page and I'm looking at the page and I see, oh, there's like something weird with Thor's hammer. Like the, like the way that he, he drew it, the speed lines were, were, were going like kind of going the wrong, like the wrong way or, you know, like it, like it wasn't following physics, you know, like the way, the way that he drew it. And so, uh, so Steve said, all right, um, tell John, tell John to fix it. And I was like. I'm not telling John Romita Sr. to fix anything. And he's like, yes, he's like, yes, you are. Like, you know, he's cool. Don't worry about it. You know, he's very professional. You know, go to John. And I'm like super scared. And I, you know, go to John Romita. I say, John, uh, you know, I was looking at this page. 
there's this thing with Thor's hammer, whatever. And he took one look at it and he's like, oh yeah, I see, like, I see the problem. And then he takes out an eraser. And like, to me, I was like, I was like, what? You know, John Romita is going to erase something? Like, that's terrible. Like, like, you know, like you don't want any of these classic guys to erase something. And then right in front of my eyes, he erased that Thor character, redrew it, did it, did it perfectly, even better than, than it was before, and, and, and gave it to me. And, you know, he was, uh, he was nice as nice. Uh, nice could be, and then you know, and I remember like you know, we we sent that page up to Joe Sinnott, who I think lives in near Woodstock, like in Saugerties or something. Uh, and uh, Sinnott did a did a bang up job, and I, I I think every year on Joe's birthday, I have I have his son's email. I think his son's name is Mark, uh, and I bug him every year to sell me that page, <laughs> that Marvel Age cover, because I was like, I have history with that page too. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, but as far as, I don't know that I rem ever remember hating anybody. I mean, I think as an intern, like, you know, yeah. like there wasn't anybody that, uh, you know, I came in contact with, like, it wasn't, it, it wasn't like I was working for Jim Shooter, you know, <laughs> uh, -huh. uh, you know, like Tom, Tom DeFalco was there every, you know, everybody, everybody was, everybody was happy. Um, uh, in addition to Hembeck doing strips for Marvel age, I was, you know, like I said, I'm I'm using that guy now to do some so button strips. Yeah, uh, there was a there was a letterer who lettered you know every every Marvel comic uh, ever. Uh, a guy named Rick Parker. He would draw a strip for Marvel Age, and Rick is now a friend of mine, and he's drawn so, a so button strip for me as well. So I mean, I've 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 definitely met people and made made connections that I've you know kept going over the years. I mean, Steve Sapple, I you know I came in. Uh, you know, I come in contact with the conventions and stuff, uh, but mm -hmm. he's also good friends with the guy who, who is the official Spider-Man for Marvel. So the guy named Steve Rados, who, you know, would dress up as Spider-Man and, you know, he would go to like the Calgary Stampede or he'd go to the all-star basketball games. And, you know, he was the official Spider-Man of, of Marvel. And he, he wrote articles for uh, Marvel age as well. And Steve and I would like, singing choirs around New York and Steve Sapple would show up at those choir concerts. Uh, you know, so I mean, I, whatever I've, you know, I've, I've kept some relationships going, uh, from my, from my time at Marvel. And I think the one guy that I was interning with that got a job was a guy named David Bogart. Uh, he, I think went to law school and I think is head of legal now for my, oh, wow. What yeah, a funny so like, like the, my one, the one intern that, uh, that, that, that kept it going. From my class and then as you said you were the second year i guess you moved over to valiant comics yeah so you... so what happened was so I, you know for some reason so this is valiant even... in nine this is valiant in 95 at right at the end of the probably vh1 as they call it yes yeah yeah it, it was exact it was exactly that 95 and i remember so I couldn't get a job at Marvel, but but somehow someone at Marvel got me into a screening of um, of Kenneth Branagh's Frankenstein, and I remember sitting behind some Marvel people. Like there's this guy named Chris Cooper who is the editor of uh, like Ghost Rider and you know Midnight Suns and all that. And I was like, hey, like any any job openings at Marvel? Any job openings at Marvel? And he's like, no. But I happen to be sitting next to this guy named Jeff Gomez who is an editor at Valiant, and he's like. Well, how about it? How about coming to work for Valiant? And I was like, I would totally work for Valiant. And then, sure enough, like, I I, I interviewed and I got an internship there. And I, you know, I, I think I worked there probably 
probably like a year in intern there for a year. I had a stipend uh, of I think ten dollars a day that enabled me to get pizza and subway fare. Uh, and uh, you know, I, I I used to like clean up artboards. And I worked on some letters pages, and I think you know, my—I I don't want to say it's not a claim to fame because no one would remember it, but but they had a back room that was like in such disarray and had so much crap and junk in it. I fixed that entire back room and wound up rescuing tons of original art and sent it back to uh, you know the rightful art you know owners, the the artists, and I remember this handful of pages that were ninjack pages uh, that I got to send back to Joe Casada before that guy was ever, you know, doing any, doing, you know, editing for Marvel, the editor chief of Marvel. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a, it was a crazy time. Like I said, I, jo- I, I got there day one, the colorists were walking out. And then mm-hmm. soon after that, they were, they were trying this thing called uh, birthquake mm-hmm. and birthquake was this thing where they they were they were trying to get some you know big name people like current people and past people and and, and try to you know try to try to pump up their their sales and it was all part of this connection with a, their acquisition by a video game company called Acclaim and uh, so you know for like the current people like you know they they took Dan Jurgens who who was you know who was the who killed off Superman uh, they brought him over to do solar and they had uh, keith giffen coming over and he was working on working on writing and doing layouts for for uh, magnus robot fighter and other people were drawing it uh for some classic guys i think they had this line i think it was maybe it was called windjammer windjammer like that Wind mike Rell worked for yeah bar sinister right, and exactly. star slayer yep yep and uh it was you could tell i know you could tell i write about this sarah uh, totally, totally, and Neil Adams, right? Like Neil Adams. Yeah, Neil Adams like had a little mini Valeria Shebat maybe was a was one of the one of the books. I remember like you know going over to the continuity offices and getting some stuff, getting some stuff from Neil. Um, but this yep, was but... this was this this was post Shooter, so like Shooter and Janet Jackson and uh, Barry Windsor Smith, like those guys were like long gone. When, when when I got there, like so, Barry Windsor Smith, I think, was art director there. And when he left, I got Don Perlin. Don Perlin was the art director, and he's, you know, he's a kind of kind of a a, a a funny sort of crotchety old Marvel guy who now I think is a extreme uh, conservative Republican guy. I, I remember uh, like uh, we were connected that. on Facebook, and uh, I think, you know, I think I just wrote one one thing that was sort of like slightly to the left and I got blocked immediately. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> you know, it happens. He, yeah, it happens. This is the time we live in. But, um, but yeah, Birthquake uh, was a fiasco. They totally. invested so much money into that and it was going to be yes. the... So, I mean, they had just been bought out by a claim and that claim paid yes. a ridiculous amount of money for the company too. Too much. Um, way too much. And everyone yeah. agrees it was way too much, but you know, it was the nature of the business at the time that they thought it was going to come back. And Acclaim saw him as a chance for IP, um, which you can't really argue with because, like, the ship game on Super NES was the Turok game. And ended up selling oh, a that, crazy that, that amount of copies. Game. Oh, yeah. That was, a, that was a huge, huge game for them. And, you know, like, it's, I mean, it, that whole period in both, like, I'm going to say film and comics 
was like this unbelievable period of like consolidation and, you know, it's, and turning, you know, turning, you know, people's fandom into licensing, (laughs) you know, like it's, you know, like, like, you know, I call Marvel and DC, you know, their new product development divisions of these bigger film companies, you know, like, like after I couldn't make it work in comics, I worked in indie film, uh, mm-hmm. I was working for an indie film distributor called October Films. And at that time, you know, and that was like a hot time for, for, for indie film. Uh, and all of the, all of those companies got eaten up by the, by, by the major companies. I mean, October Films eventually became USA Films, which turned into Focus Features, which is now just, you know, a division of Universal. Okay. Uh, you know, all, all, you know, so like the fact that, uh, you know, Valiant just became like a division of, a, you know, like a division of a claim, you know, it just ceased to become a comics company. Uh, I mean, I think, I think, you know, if you, if you look, if you look at those comics and, and, and actually, you know, read read those comics i mean those early valiant books were really great and had a really great spirit and and as as bad a reputation as shooter might have with with people i think the guy really created something special over there as he did at marvel like you know he's got this bad reputation but man he's got some really good books under his belt yeah you know yeah, what they call the pre-Unity comics. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, during the Shooter's original era, right up until the, the amazing Unity crossover, which is maybe still right. the greatest comics crossover ever, are actually great comics. Uh, great and comics, it, really great. They're a great contrast to the image books, too, because uh, Valiant focused on story and not art. And so um, right. there's, a lot, there's a lot of intense stories in there. Uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of, like, early Rye, um, especially when it ran as a backup, I think in Magnus. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's yeah. a super dark, uh, very bleak kind of apocalyptic story that just starts dark and ends even darker. Um, and it's just this really amazing story. The early Exo Man of War is just a one of the best Conan. That's like Conan in the in the present, and right. uh, it just works in so an well. Man suit. Yeah, Conan in a can, as they called it. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas actually, by the time you worked there, um, all that was really played out. It just, it just didn't have any of the freshness it did um, no, in the I early mean, days. I, mean, I think I was there. I was there when they were still dealing with that whole image fiasco. With like, I forget what it, was that called, Checkmate or something like that. Where you know, it, it, it's it's like that. Like the image was it was a four issue miniseries. And Image was supposed to do two issues, and Valiant was supposed to do two issues, but like you could not get those artists to uh, from Image to finish the books. Like you know, apparently there's some story where Bob Layton is like literally sitting outside of Rob Liefeld's office and like banging on the door and saying like, "I am not leaving until you finish this book" or something. And and you know, it just became late and returnable, and you know, just one of the one of the nails in the coffin of. of Valiant, but yeah, I think I was also there. It was like people were pissed that Turok number one, which was supposed to be a wraparound chromium cover, was like it was just yeah. like a, a, pa- a panel on it. That was a that was apparently some something that pissed people off. I mean, it was just it was weird. It was like the whole period was weird. But you know, at, right when I was at Marvel and Valiant, it was like all that poly bags, chromium embossed like including trading cards it was like it was that that period was crazy that was a, that was a crazy period to be in that was death mate 
Deathmate, not checkmate. Deathmate. And I actually tell the exact that exact story in my book, um, which is Bob Layton camped out at Rob Liefeld's doorstep to force him to create his his issues because it was so late. And um, (laughs) if there was one original sin that caused the entire comic market to collapse, it may have been Deathmate. Coming in the wake of the return of Superman, um, which was a complete fiasco. uh, (laughs) Yeah, the death knell, exactly. Yeah. Um, Crazy. So I can imagine what the atmosphere must have been like there. I mean, you're talking ninety. You're talking ninety-five, and you know, the um, birthquake. um, They had high hopes for it, and there were months when. Valiant released like 24 or 25 comics and then by the end of the year they were down to 10 or 12 comics yeah. um, and they had basically abandoned their whole hero line totally yeah yeah I mean they were there I mean they, they were they were trying all these different things and, and it's unfortunate because some of that stuff was some of that stuff was good right like uh, there was there was um, a series I think it was called armed and dangerous and mm-hmm. it was almost a sin city kind of a black and white thing uh, a guy named Bob Hall, who was Bob like a, you know Mar- a Marvel stalwart, you know guy like Don Perlin, you know, uh, he you know he did that was that was a that was a great book. I mean, there was a lot of there was a lot of good stuff going on, but they were really just you know they threw too much out there too quickly, which I think is I think it's always the always the death knell for a lot of these places. I mean, Valiant grew small and organically, and the, and and like that's why it was good. I think. Same thing happened years later with that company, uh, CrossGen, right? Like that was yeah. like the same thing. Like they were, they were great. It was a great idea, and they 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 built up organically. And, and so, but then all of a sudden, they just like, no, now instead of just like four awesome books, we're you know it's going to be thirty. You know, <laughs> they just like they just fuck themselves so quickly. I just like yeah. I never. I never get these companies, you know. Well, because like, it's like, just it's just the greed, especially yeah, at that time. Because it's like we're not going to build a sustainable engine. Well, okay. So here's my take on it. Yeah. As as someone who wrote the, hopefully will be seen as a definitive history. We'll see. I didn't get an Eisner nomination, so maybe it's not definitive. <laughs> but anyway, um, uh, I think everyone just believed the boom was going to keep going. I think mm. there was no there was nothing showing them that that sales were going to ever drop. I mean, there were the fact that people had, you know, backrooms full of copies of Spider-Man number one, but there wasn't any signs that the industry was collapsing. In fact, just the opposite. They were, they kept seeing more and more money coming in. And then when it did collapse, which was around the return of Superman, uh, they felt like that was just going to be a temporary thing. But um, no one really had the objective perception that things were actually falling apart. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, you can see it, but in a way, it's like the 2008 economic collapse um, because no one thought housing prices were too high at the time. No one really yeah. kind of made alerted anybody. And even there, you know, like the, the amount of time it takes people to react to those events, to, to events on the ground is so slow that um, it just wasn't time for the reaction. So, yeah. you know, by 94, when comics were collapsing, like we were just talking about, like the legend comics line began and um, there was still hope that the industry would be turning around. I mean, Jim Studer was starting companies even up until 1996 under the hope that that those books would sell. I mean, Broadway Comics, which was financed by a video company, I remember um, that, yeah. was a was a big 96 launch. He only ended up releasing like 40 comics during that 
those eight months or nine months was alive, but there was still a belief there was money in comics. Um, and that, that's and it was the, not completely the first irrational. One that he did right. That's not even the first one after Valiant. But wasn't um, Defiant? No, he did Defiant, yeah. Defiant, yeah. Crazy. Right, with David Lapham. Yeah, David Lapham, who ended up being one of the great uh, great stars coming out of that era. Totally. Funny, I just bought a David Lapham page not two weeks ago. It's beautiful. Oh, no way. This beautiful ink sketch he did of Electra. Um, oh, that's I just, great. It's, it's just gorgeous. Um, anyway. Um, so, yeah, Valiant must have been just crazy. It must have been turmoil the entire time you were there. It was it, the entire time. The entire time I was there, it was very depressing. <laughs> you had, uh, you know, the, st- the staff got halved three times. And, you know, like I said, it kind of culminated in that day where, you know, people, you know, didn't know what was what was happening. They had heard maybe half the staff was going to, you know, going to get canned. One by one, people went into Bob Layton's office and the bullpen was just playing uh, the Empire uh, Imperial March all mm-hmm. day long, and uh, mm-hmm. kind of a notorious, notorious day in that in that company in that industry. Just uh, it was a it was a, it was a really bad time. And they, you know, I I left to go to go work at Topps Comics uh, right right after that because they actually offered me a staff job. But uh, you know, I mean, they they tried they tried one more kind of thing you know at, after that my friend steve rattos from from marvel he wound up going go, going to valiant a, after i left and uh and you know i think they brought in like kevin mcguire like he had a mm-hmm. book that maybe it was called trinity angels yeah uh, i was just chatting with him about that at emerald city oh, comic-con yeah. yeah yeah i mean it was it was like and they brought they brought Valiant back as Valiant, I think, you know, or they just focused on it a little bit more than, than the acclaim, but it just, it, it just did not work out. They were going to do another unity mini, mini series that like, I don't, I, I don't know that they ever finished it or not. Or, First know, three issues just, came out written by yeah. Jim Shooter, illustrated oh, by wow. Jim Starlin. And they are the craziest comics. There's this bizarre kind of undercurrent of sexual tension between this pair of siblings and, um, the story doesn't make a lot of coherent sense. Um, it, it's just this very, very strange thing. Um, the Starlin, Jim Starlin draws it, and Starlin's art is very uh, inappropriate for the work. It just feels way more serious mm. than I think Shooter was trying for. Um, right. was, um, but the, this this undercurrent that Shooter has in some of his, uh, of his work of like power elements and bizarre sexual quirks is like really on the surface there and mm. just makes it just a weird, weird read. Um, huh. But that you're talking the uh, 97 revival, which uh, yeah. Fabian Nicieza led. That's right. Yeah. Fa- and Fa- Fabian, I think was an editor at Marvel when I was, uh, he was an editor or maybe he was just writing like exports or something like that when I was interning at Marvel. But yeah, now and so I, and I Fabian now I think worked uh, there was a flip around Fabian who was editor in chief he now works for Jeff Gomez who is the guy that got me my my internship at Valiant like Jeff okay. Gomez is now now like a um, he's sort of he's like a like a like a writer creator who does consulting work to help companies with world building something like that uh, and Fabian works for him now. Uh, they, but Fabian, that that's a that's a super nice guy. 
Yeah, but you were you weren't there at that time. You went. No. you were over at Val or at Tops Comics. How long totally, did you work yeah. at Tops? So Tops, Tops, I would say was probably probably two years or a year and a half. Okay. So so I so I started uh, I started just like interning for this guy Greg Goldstein, who I think now is the president of IDW, uh, or 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 maybe he just left IDW. I'm not sure, but. Um, uh, I was his, I was his intern, and I really wanted to be associated with the the comic books there, and so I became friendly with this guy, Len Brown, who was um, a he was a, like a card editor and a comic editor under Jim Salakrup. Uh but Len Lenny when he was a kid worked with like Wally Wood and uh, Woody Gelman to create mm-hmm. Mars Attacks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I wound I wound up getting a staff job there, and I was assistant editor in comics under. For, you know, for the, we, we tops only did licensed stuff. Everything they did was licensed. So like like right. Ignola Dracula that was licensed. Uh, they did a, a whole Jack Kirby thing that was like licensed from from Kirby. Uh, so I did a thing that was called Space Above and Beyond. It was a failed Fox series about Marines in space. Uh, which it was not a bad show. It just it just didn't catch on, um, and so we you know we we did a few issue mini mini series that was based on the pilot, and then and then a, then one original story. And I got to meet uh, Roy Thomas because he Roy Thomas did the adaptation, and then he did the then then he did the new the new comics, and they were all drawn uh, by this guy's first mainstream work uh, by a guy named Yannick Paquette, who is now a big artist and you know he, he did a lot he did stuff for alan moore i think it was called like yeah. seven Sol- really... soldiers uh and uh and he does you know he did swamp thing and he does covers for wonder woman and batman and the guy you know the guy's everywhere now he's a really, really cool uh french canadian guy uh but but he had his first job on that on that book and he the first we had switched inkers but the first inker on that book was a you know, sort of like a famed Michael Golden inker named Armando Gill, who apparently mm-hmm. now is in jail. <laughs> like, yeah, for I was some just really seeing that. bad stuff. Yeah, <coughs> I just saw that. Oh my god, it's like the small world kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what was that like? That must have been an island of normalcy in the midst of all the chaos of the other companies yeah. you worked for. Yeah, Tops was Tops was definitely more normal because they were stabilized by. Uh, by their by their confections, right? So Tops Tops's number one business is confections, right? They do bazooka bubblegum uh, and ring pops and you know all that all all that kind of candy. Uh, so I mean, like like the cards were back in the day were like those were the bonus to the gum, not the other not the other way around where the, uh-huh. where the gum was a baseball card bag. Uh, but yeah, so their confections were doing great. So you know they were trying this comics thing, and they they did it for a few years. They had I think one really big hit with the X Files uh, mm-hmm. that did that that did really well. Uh, and that and the artist of of the X Files is Charlie Adlard, who is now like you know been drawing Walking Dead since issue number six or something like that. After the original guy uh, Tony Moore drew it, but um, uh, you know Topps Comics, you know they they. They did they did okay, not amazing, and but not not enough to keep it going. And then I transferred over into the trading card division, uh, and you know they were they were trying things like uh, trying to come up with a new garbage pail kids series. I think it was called like Bathroom Buddies, and was like 
you know, even more toilet humor than than, uh, <laughs> than garbage pail kids. And you know, we would send ra- these random boxes to to places and you know, as test markets to see how they how they would do. And you know, it didn't, didn't really work out. Um, and uh, you know, we had this series called Star Wars Galaxy, uh, and, uh, and that was you know that that was that was a really successful series. And we had a a magazine also that that I you know that I helped with some con- content for and you know it was lucky I got to you know I got to go to the San Diego Comic Con twice and this is back when uh, you know San Diego was thirty thousand people instead of you know one hundred and fifty thousand mm-hmm. thousand people it's like you know it was it was it was just comic books so there was you know there wasn't wasn't really media properties and. Uh, you know that was uh, that, that was that was a lot of fun. So it was you know, it, but everyone there was for the most part uh, older. I was I was you know easily the youngest guy, uh, youngest guy there uh, for the for the entirety of the two years that I was there, uh, and it was you know th- that was a lot of fun. But but the industry was not not good, and you know they they had hired a marketing guy that I that I worked under. And, you know, we, we basically looked at where the market was, uh, you know, looked at all the sales that were going on. And, you know, we basically came up with this, uh, with this idea. We were like, hey, hey, uh, right now in this market and what's going to happen over the next six months, there is you cannot make a penny on any series. Mm-hmm. Like for six months, you won't be, you will not be able to make any money. Now the trading card market drops like seventy percent in a year, and you know tops didn't drop as much as that. Everyone else went out of business. Tops, tops lost like twelve percent or something like that. But, um, but, but, but they weren't making money. So we were like, why don't you give us this really good severance package, <laughs> and we're we're just going to close up the department, and that's uh, you know which was two people. Uh, and uh, and that's that's exactly what happened. We you know we we took this really really nice package, uh, and then and then after that, you know, it, it it started to really fall apart. You know, tops who had produced uh, produced car you know did cards and gum out of a plant in a town called Duryea, Pennsylvania. I'm pretty sure they closed that factory down and everything went to China. Uh, you know, like just tons of people lost, lost their jobs after that. And, uh, you know, they, they, they suffered also as part of the, you know, the, the downfall of, of the industry. And by dumb luck, uh, I, I had an intern and that intern stuck around and he was the only one who knew anything about this license called Pokemon. Ah. Uh, and uh, so they, I think they put him on staff, and he, you know, he became like an editor of Pokemon cards, which then became the biggest, uh, the biggest non-sport trading card of all time. <laughs> That's funny, so, you know. Like, and then, and then Michael, and then uh, Michael Eisner bought them, right? Isn't the, doesn't Michael Eisner own Tops now? I think so. I have to check yeah. that. Huh? Yeah, yeah. After, yeah, after he, after he, you know, got ousted from Disney. I think uh, Eisner Eisner bought Tops because so he, he thought he could turn these into big movie properties. Like I was there when Mars Attacks came out. Like that was that was fun. Right. Well, so for all of us, like our teens and twenties are kind of a crazy time in our life. But for you, you had yeah. steady work. But it was even more crazy than I think it was for others. You got to yeah. see kind of the other side of the comics industry, which was 
kind of crappy, honestly. It Probably was. not what it you was. expected. It was not. It was not what I expected. It was definitely a le- you know, definitely a lesson of, <clears throat> you know, they say they say like, you know, like don't meet your heroes, you know, <laughs> like yeah, you know, like they, like they, they, you know, like I, I, you know, you know, for for me it was like don't work in that industry that you love, <laughs> uh huh, you know, because I just really saw so much bad stuff. But I mean, there was look, there was there was a lot of good stuff, I and mean, it was really really cool that I got to you know meet so many artists, so many creators. Uh, go to the San Diego Comic Con. Uh, you know, I got to do. You know, I got to do so many things. And you know, like I and I think probably because I was in my twenties, I think if all that stuff happened to me now as a as an adult with a child, mm-hmm. uh, it, it would be really horrible. But as a kid in in his twenties, I mean, my my rent on the Lower East Side was like three three hundred and twenty dollars <laughs> back then. And so right. you know, it was, it was sort of like. You know, like it, it, it wasn't the, the biggest deal uh, to to kind of like lo- lose a job or, you know, get out of that industry or move around. And I also just happened to luck out. I always found uh, something else pretty, pretty quickly. So, you know, it never I, you know, I never felt depressed about it. But looking back on it, certainly, uh, you know, you go like, oh, there's probably, you know, historically speaking, more bad things than good things but for but for me personally you know i had a lot of i had I had a lot of great moments and met so many great people you know i uh you know i was i was i was happy to happy to be there when i was and and frankly i you know i, I i'm lucky i think that i didn't get a job right like mm-hmm. that i didn't get a job at marvel or or like didn't get to keep going at tops because you know i can't imagine any job would be really that great uh you know valiant like totally died until a few years ago when someone else created it marvel went at marvel like went bankrupt and had to be revived uh, another way tops you know also tops got bought by eisner i mean like i probably would not you know have kept a job if i ever got a job so uh you know i think uh i think i think my time there was was fine yeah and and great that it happened in my 20s and not my 40s right it's good to learn those lessons early in life i think um for sure yeah yeah i can appreciate that um this is any any other stories you want to share let's see any anything else i'm trying trying to anything so you know i just want just like one random thing i mean so now the new york comic-con is uh just as big, if not bigger, than the San Diego Comic Con. But I do, I do remember I was at Marvel in in '94, which I think was the last year of the old New York Comic Con. I think they used to call them the Greenberg shows. And uh, I I do remember working the booth that one year, uh, and uh, there was something that happened where Greenberg did not pay off. Uh, the mafia, or, you know, oh wow, <laughs> or the Teamsters, or whatever. There was like run, running Javits Center, and uh, and it effectively killed that. They just so they shut Javits down. The comic comic convention did not did not open like the next day or something. And then what got birthed from that, uh, I think, were the Big Apple cons uh, in in New York, which I think uh, eventually led to the return of a bigger 
uh, comic convention, you know, like a like a decade later. But uh, that's another thing I saw the death of. I saw, saw the death of the old New York Comic Con. <laughs> <laughs> which which is okay. The old yeah. can die away. Bill sure. Sailing has been gone for a long time. It's yeah. time to move on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, my when my friends are like, "How do you feel about there being all the media at the comic conventions?" I'm like. Bring it on. It brings more people to the show. It, it may make it more busy. They may not be true comic fans, but they're in the building. They're supporting this yeah. stuff. Long term helps everybody. I hope so. I, you know, I, I hope so. I mean, I think. Um... I mean, you're right when you say, yeah. I mean, how many people who see uh, Avengers are going to buy comics? Almost nobody. But Almost nobody. That's true. If it keeps the IP factory open, that's a good thing for everyone. Yeah, no, that's true. I uh, I went so I went so I was working for USA Network uh, for like eight years, and about five years ago, uh, I I got into the small press section of San Diego Comic Con. It was my you know first time back at San Diego in a in a decade or something, uh, and so you know I'm selling selling so buttons there and realizing that I bumped into more people I knew from. USA Network and NBC and HBO huh. and Show, Showtime than I did from working at Marvel and Valiant and Tops. <laughs> like, you know, like I bumped into way more people that I've worked with in TV and film than uh, than I did in comics at Comic Con, and I remember thinking that was a that was an interesting shift. But that said, you know, I now do these. I, you know, I bring my books to buttons to these small press conventions and the, the the spirit of those things is you know real like creator driven uh personal wild you know comic books and it's like if you want to go somewhere where there are you know just comic books and exciting things happening in comic books that you know aren't guys in tapes or something like it's out there for you. You know, people can yeah. people can go to conventions that are like. So, I mean, I think tomorrow, literally tomorrow morning, I'm going to a show that is. Uh, oh, I think the audio went out in one of my air uh, earbuds. So I, you, I bet you the other one, the other one's going to go soon too. But okay, uh, you're still good here. Uh, but yeah, that's a, okay, that's no, a that's sign. Okay. Uh, but the, I'm going to an it's an original comic art show is in uh, is in Manhattan tomorrow that I'm going to go to. Oh, nice! And that'll, that'll be that'll be all superhero comic related. You know, nice. Well, enjoy it. I hope you. I hope you find something that's really good. Some cool yeah, original yeah. art. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you.